John chapter 6. We began our time last Lord's Day together talking about the issue of impossibilities. And we said that from our perspective, life is full of impossibilities. Some of them, in fact, are very, very serious. There are hurts that we endure. There are circumstances that overwhelm us. And we end up saying things like, I will never be able to forgive that person. And I hope you realize when you say something like that, you are locking yourself in a bondage to that person for the rest of your life. They'll float free and easy. You will be the one that suffers. We say things like, there is no way this marriage will ever be put together. Not after what they've done. We say things like, I will never be able to love again. And we lock ourselves from our limited perspective into a bondage because of our stinking thinking. That's really what it is, it's stinking thinking. And we said last time that there is a marvelous truth, and that is this, that the word impossibility really is a matter of perspective. It's a matter of whose eyes you're looking through when you look at this impossible circumstance. And it makes a great deal of difference whose eyes you are looking through. And praise God, there is a God out there who says that there is no such thing as impossibility. We noted, in fact, that the only reason the word exists in God's vocabulary in the Bible is so that he can refute it. He himself says, nothing is too difficult for me. Jesus repeated it, the things that are impossible with man are not are possible with God. And we said there is a marvelous truth that you and I need to own if you and I are going to live in this world at all. And that is that God can do anything. He doesn't know the meaning of the word impossible. But that is not enough. We need to know more than that. We need to go beyond the fact that God can do anything because really what good is that to us unless he exercises that power on our behalf? Otherwise, all we can do is run around and talk about how great God is and how powerful he is. But really, what good does that if he doesn't exercise that power on our behalf? So there's a second truth that you and I need to own, and that is that God is for us. That he exercises that omnipotent power on our behalf to meet our need. Maybe to remove the trial completely, God can do that. But more often than not, I find God not removing the trial, but providing his own resources in the midst of it, so that you and I can stand victorious in our struggle. That is our God. And when that happens, the world looks at us and they'll come to attention. So we need to mark those two things. And, and these are the two truths that you and I are going to see in John chapter 6. We are going to see that God can do anything. He's going to take five biscuits, really, and two sardines... And he's going to feed fifteen to 20,000 people. And that is a miracle. It is the most public miracle that Jesus did in all of his ministry. And it's so incredible, really, that towards the end of chapter 6, when we get there in about a year and a half, <laughs> we're going to see that these people are ready to make him a king. They're going to do that by force. I mean, Jesus has no, no say-so in the matter. They're ready to revolt against Rome. 
But we're also going to see in here this second great truth, that he is for us. Think about it, beloved. He's going to meet the needs of these people. He's going to meet their physical needs, not just their spiritual needs. And that is an incredible thought. Because in John chapter 2, what did we learn? We learned that he knew they really didn't believe in him. But we took it a little deeper in John chapter 5, and and we saw that he knew they didn't love him. Here in John 6, we're going to learn that he knows the only reason they're following him is so they can get from him. In other words, they want to use him. And our incredible Jesus, I guess that's an important truth. You better learn that one. (laughs) Our incredible Jesus is going to minister to them and feed their bellies, even though he knows that's all they're after. That's an incredible God. Now, if he's going to do that for those kinds of people who don't believe in him and don't love him, how much more so will he provide his resources to us? That's the truth that we hopefully are going to glean from this chapter. That our God shall supply all our needs in Christ Jesus. There may be pain. There may be hurt. There may be struggle. But his resources in that struggle enabling us to stand. That's John chapter 6. Now, beloved, I want to share with you that the process of learning these two truths is often a painful one. The process of learning that God can do anything and that God can do anything for us is often very painful. And you say, well, why is that? Well, beloved, it's really very simple. The truth is that human nature is all too prone to look to other than God for our resources. And that in itself will bring us pain. Because even as Jim shared today in in his time with the Lord's table, people will let us down. People's resources are not enough. Our own resources are not enough. And so that in itself causes us pain. But it goes even further than that. You see, when you and I encounter difficult circumstances, the first thing I think we're prone to do is look inward. And and I want you to get this progression because this is going to open up John chapter 6. As soon as the impossible circumstance comes our way, we look inward to our resources, our wisdom, our bank account, our strength, our tenacity. And we grit our teeth and say, I'll make it. We're also prone to look earthward. What I mean by that is we look to other people's resources. If our resources are not not enough, there's always someone else with a bigger bank account. There's always someone else with more grit and determination that we can lean on. And if that fails, we'll look outward. And what I mean by that is we'll seek an escape. Diversion. Let's just occupy our minds and pretend it didn't happen. Or let's pack up the family and move and get away from it. And run away. And when that happens, we live in a dream world, beloved, because we're trying to escape reality. And when we try to escape reality, we are failing to come to grips with the circumstance that has come into our life. And that circumstance, beloved, must be entered into because God himself is the one who gave it to us. I hope you heard what we just said. Because that is the third truth that you and I need to learn. One, God can do anything. 
Two, God is for us. Well, that means that whatever circumstance we're going through has to have come from the hand of God, ultimately. And that's the truth I want us to learn, that God will send us impossible circumstances. Put it in park and let that sink in. God is the author of impossible circumstances. He sends us the impossible circumstances to show us and strip us of these three resources. When we look inward, when we look earthward, when we look outward, those things work a lot of times. Well, since they work, what are we going to depend on? Those three things. Our resources, people's resources, or escaping. And the only way we're going to learn that God is for us and God can do anything is if He sends us something that these three resources will not meet. Do you see that? As long as these three things work, we won't be depending on God. And so God is the author of impossible circumstances. And I want you to understand, that is the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The glorious truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you remember the account? Paul got a thorn in the flesh. What was it? We don't know. And I'm glad we don't know. Because you know what human nature would do? Let's say that it was bursitis. And the Word of God said, Paul got bursitis, so that his strength, God's strength, could be perfected in Paul's weakness. You know what everybody with bursitis would do? Yep, got the same thing old Paul had. Yep. Must be a very special in the eyes of God, I must, you know. And that's what we would do. And everybody else would sit here without bursitis and our own little afflictions, and we'd say, well, I just wish I could know what grace is, but since I don't have that bursitis, it'll never be perfected. You see what would happen? That's human nature. So, the Word of God left it out and didn't tell us what it was. It just said it hurt. How bad did it hurt? Hurt bad enough for Paul to say, take it away, take it away, take it away. And what did God say? Sorry, son. I love you too much. You see, I know that when this circumstance comes your way, you won't be able to depend on your own resources. This one hurts too bad. This one's going to force you to come to me. And when you're forced to come to me, you're going to find me in a way you never knew me. You're going to find grace like you never knew it. And I've got to tell you, I, these are the people I meet with in the counseling arena. And they come in with enough pain that they want to die. A lot of times. But these are the same people who, when God opens their eyes to His grace, will look you in the eye with tears streaming down their cheeks, and they will say, I know God in a way you will never know Him, and I wouldn't trade what I've been through for nothing. And that, my friends, is awesome. And that's what our God wants to be. That's this lesson. This is, that's John chapter 6 here. That's what it's all about. It's the message of Job chapter 1. You remember what Job happened to Job? He lost his babies. You can't tell me a man who loses ten babies in one shot ever heals from that. That man took that pain to the grave. But at the end of the book, 
says, Job died a happy man. You see, Christians are the only ones who can weep and have joy at the same time. Because we're not like the rest of the human race. We have God inside of us. We're a brand new humanity. You're all mutants. You realize that? Say, praise God, I'm a mutant. It's true. You're the only one that can weep and have joy of the Lord at the same time. And that's what God wants you to know. And do you remember what Job said at the end of the book? Oh, wow, God, I used to say I knew you, but now my eyes really see. That only comes from impossible circumstances. And so what happens, beloved, is when you and I are prone to depend on our own resources, the resources of others are ways of escape. When God begins to strip those things, it hurts. Because these are the things we've built our life on. And when they're stripped away from us, we feel empty and alone and we feel like we want to die. And it's a very painful process. But you and I have got to understand that what's really happening here is that God is stripping away all of these things so that we have Him and Him alone. He wants to give us Himself. So he's going to take away all of these good things so he can give us the best thing. Listen, beloved, if it's true that God is for us, and it is, and if it's true that God can do anything, and he can, then don't you see the truth that whatever you're enduring right now has to be from his hand? You see, you have a choice. You and I have got to begin to deal honestly with the scriptures and what it says about our God. The tendency of most Christians is to instantly blame it on Satan. Do you not know the lesson of Job chapter 1 that Satan could not touch Job unless God gave him permission? You see, we we either have two options. We have three options. One, you can either hold the view of Rabbi Kirshner, whose little boy died of leukemia. And so he wrote a book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And his, his treatise, his tenet, the thing that he arrives at as the answer is, God does love us, but he's just not strong enough to overcome evil. You want to worship a wimp? If God is a wimp, I don't want him as my God. You can either hold that view or you can hold the view of the deist, which is a first century cult, which is the way a lot of Christians act, even though that's not what they believe. And that is this, that God created the world, then he backed off and he's letting everything run its course. Is that the kind of God you want? Do you want a God who's indifferent? Lottie, is that what you want? Do you want a God who's indifferent? who doesn't care, who doesn't step in. Well, the only other possibility is that God has allowed these circumstances to come your way with a purpose. And that is where most Christians struggle. You mean God would wound me? You mean God would allow that? I had a dear brother call me this week. He was ministering in another church up in the north part of this state. 
And he was very frustrated because he, he shared that message. And several of the people walked out. God doesn't cause pain. Well, I'll tell you what, he sure allows it. And if he allows it and he can do anything, he could have stopped it and he chose not to. He is sovereign. And why does he do that then? Well, very simply this. He strips us of every other resource so we'll have no hand to hold but his. Because when you hold his hand, you'll find that he's sufficient. He wants to empty you so that he can fill you. That's the bottom line. My Father, I pray today that as we examine this passage that your spirit will open the eyes of your people. That you will show us how much you love us. That you will show us this stripping process here in the pages of John 6. That you'll show us how you want to be our everything. So that we can be a people who trust you for everything. And we ask that in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. In fact, I'll, I'll clue you in. That is really the issue of John 6. To be honest with you, the feeding of the 5,000 is just a tool. So many, many Christians come to this path. Wow, we fed 5,000 people. What an awesome God. That's just a tool. He's going to use the tool to show us something far more wonderful. Well, let's turn over to Mark chapter 6. We'll start there. Mark chapter 6. Move very quickly, please. If you can't keep up, look on your neighbor because we've got a long way to go. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 7. Jesus called unto him the twelve, and let's set a context for this miracle. He began to send them forth two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Mark that. Jesus is sending out the twelve to heal and to preach, and he sends them with no bag, no food, no money. Mark that. It'll be important later. Be only shod with sandals, do not put on two coats. Verse 10, And he said unto them, In whatever place you enter a house, there abide till you depart from that place. And whoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. And verily I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out, and they preached that men should repent. And watch verse 13, And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. Now get the picture. Jesus has been going around the area of the ancient Middle East, and he's been healing people everywhere he goes. We saw that last time, right? It was just bang, 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 bang. Thousands and thousands of healings. The place would have been in pandemonium. Now do you see what's happened? Now he commissions the twelve, and the twelve go out. And guess what? The twelve were able to do the same thing. We got a multiplied effect. Now we have thirteen, quote-unquote, Christs, if you will. Because that is what a Christian is. He's a little Christ. I'm not saying you're God, but I'm saying you have God in you. You represent Christ to the world. Now you've got 13 of them running around healing and doing things. Can you imagine the pandemonium that's now breaking loose? 
All right, let's add some more here. In verses 14 through 29, we find that John the Baptist has just been beheaded. And that news reaches Jesus. Jesus, of course, would have been grieved and sorrowful, which he was, and you can read that on your own. In verse 30 now, some six to eight months later, we skip ahead, and we find that the disciples have come back to Jesus after being sent out. And i got to tell you, I believe they were like little kids here. What do little kids do when they go on a field trip? And they get to see all this stuff. What do they do when they come back, Mom and Dad? Mom, Dad, you wouldn't believe what I saw. Right? That's what they want to do. Well, that's what disciples are. Can you imagine men going out and, and bang, Steve Meek, get up and walk. He, he was a, a paralytic. Get up and walk. You, demon, get out of Robert. Sorry, Robert. <laughs> you get the idea, man. They're going to come back to Jesus. Jesus, you wouldn't believe what happened. Man, we got to do... See, that's the way they are. They're excited. How else are they? What are your kids like when they come back from a long journey? Tired. Where do you think these men are? Tired. What do you think the people have been doing to them? Flogging around them. Wearing them out. Just like with Jesus. In fact, we can prove that biblically. Just look at this passage. In verse 30, the disciples got together. They wanted to tell him everything they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, hey, look. We got to go to this desert place and rest a while because there were lots of people coming around and they didn't even have time to eat. I mean, the people are flocking around them. They can't even talk to Jesus. They can't even get a chance to eat, let alone rest. And so Jesus says, hey, we got to get out of here and we're going to go to a lonely place. Also translates desert place. Mark that. That is very, very important. It will come into play later. So Jesus says, we're going to get out of here. And what do they do? They take a boat to this lonely desert place. A place where there are no people. A sparsely populated place. A rural place. And if you look at Mark 6, it says that the people, in verse 32, were following by boat. They had hooked onto a good deal. They weren't about to let the good deal get away. So they're going to follow Jesus. All right, let's go over to Luke 9. Luke 9 tells us in verse 11 where they're going. And that tells us, verse 10... He took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city or village, it was really more of a village, called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. So the people head out after on foot. All right, let's go over to John 6. Verse 3. And we learn there that Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now that tells us that Jesus and the disciples had to have arrived first, right? They take the boat, head across the Sea of Galilee, they get out, go up on the mountain, and there Jesus sits down with his disciples. And mark that, he sat. For a rabbi, that's the traditional posture for teaching. So he's teaching the disciples. And I got news for you, the disciples are about to get the lesson of their lives. Verse 5 of John 6 tells us 
that Jesus looked up and saw this great company of people coming to him. So they're journeying around, and now they are there. And verse 4 of John 6 tells us that it was the Passover, a feast of the Jews, and it was very, very near. Now that tells us, and we'll look at the map here. So apparently here's what's happened. Jesus is here. The disciples come back. The crowds are all around him. He gets the news that John the Baptist has is, is died. There's too many people for them to even get a break, so they hop in the boat and they jump across the Sea of Galilee over here to the, near to the area of Bethsaida. Head up into a mountain, and there he sits down with his disciples. On the meantime, all these people are heading north and around a distance of nine miles. Four-mile journey by boat, nine-mile journey on foot. Now, as they go north, it's Passover time. So where's everybody heading at the Passover season? They're heading south, right? It's holiday flight, just like what happens here. Memorial Day, Easter, Thanksgiving, everybody, right, off to, to visit. Things haven't changed. They're all heading north. Well, you got a big crowd, excuse me, they're all heading south, and you got a big crowd heading north. What do all the people that are heading south say? Hey, man, we're going to Jerusalem. What's up here? Why are you going north? We're going to see Jesus, miracle worker, heals the sick, casts out demons, raises the dead. What do you suppose the crowd going south did? Yeah, they did an about face. And so this crowd is beginning to grow. When you look at Mark 6.33, it says every city they came to, every village they came to, the people in the village joined them. Do you realize what's happening? We're told here that there's a crowd of 5,000 men. If you take one woman and two children, there's probably fifteen to 20,000. But who's to say that there wasn't more women than men? Because women are more concerned about the things of God than men. Right? Sad commentary, but a lot of times that's true. And so there could have been thirty to 40,000. In those days, they had more kids in the family, six to eight. Babcocks, could you all stand up? Are, are you all here? They're dispersed. The diaspora has occurred. Yeah, so there could have been thirty to 40,000 people. Monstrous, monstrous crowd. All right. John 6, Jesus sees this crowd coming. And now we're going to see the first supposed solution stripped away. Where do we say people look when an impossible circumstance comes? Inward, their own resources. Earthward to other people's resources. And then outward, let's get out of here, find a way of escape. All right, the first one, looking inward. And that's exactly what we're going to see. Notice verse 5. Jesus, of John 6, lifts up his eyes sees this great company coming unto him, and he initiates things. Mark that. Jesus starts it off. And he says, Philip, where are we going to buy food for all these people? We're going to call this the perplexing of Philip. And he puts it to Philip. Philip, where are we going to buy food? Now think about this. Who is Jesus? He's God. Can he do anything? Could he have fed these 5,000 people? Sure. 
I mean, Jesus just could have gone, bang, and manna down from heaven. I mean, he'd done it before with the Israelites. I mean, Jesus could have solved the problem, am I right? Would you say that? Yes, you're right. I love it when you say that. That's a joke. All right. Yeah, Jesus could have solved the problem, but what did he do? He chose not to solve it. Instead, he dumps it all in Philip's lap. Why did he do that? You ever thought about that? How about this one? Because God loves to see a squirm. I mean, he just has a great old time up there watching us run around helter-skelter like cackling hens. Right? The sky is falling, you know. Save all these people! And we run around like this. Do you relate to that at all? Is this right or wrong? It's wrong. And yet it's right. Say, in what way? Well, he loves to see us run, but not helter-skelter. He loves to see us run to him. That's why he brings the impossible circumstance. Because he knows that you and I are prone to live independent of God. And when we're living independent of him, we're settling for second best. Because we're only depending on our resources and the resources of others. So God gives an impossible circumstance. Not to see us run around like a bunch of yo-yos. Acting as if there's no God. But to force us to run to him. In fact, if you look... At verse 6, look what it says. This Jesus said to test him. He wanted to prove Philip. He wanted to teach Philip to run to him. He himself knew what he would do. Jesus, mark that, already knew he was going to feed these people. You realize that? He already knew what he was going to do. But he dumped it in Philip's lap. So Philip would say, Lord, you know, we can't do this. You have to. You see, we are kind of like rubber bands. A brand new rubber band cannot be stretched very far without breaking. But if you've got a rubber band that's been continually stretched and continually stretched, it'll go a long ways before it breaks. Stretched. And that's what God intends to do. They, however, of course, aren't going to run to him. They're going to look at their own resources. They're going to try to pull it off. And they have not yet learned that marvelous truth of John 15, that without me you can do nothing. I am the vine. Life is in me. You're just a branch. So Jesus dumps this in their lap. Why did he choose Philip? Now, that's another question. Why Philip? Commentators have had a ball with this one. He was standing closest to Jesus, one commentator says, and so Jesus just picked him. Now, if you notice, that has probably got some truth to it. It's dangerous to stand up here where uh, people are, are speaking publicly. You notice the first two seats or rows here are very sparsely populated because they get picked on second possibility, one suggested, was, well, 
he had just asked a question or commented on this crowd. Oi, they look at that crowd. And so Jesus singled him out. A third said, well, maybe Philip needed it most. He wasn't a very compassionate guy. Another said, well, he was slow of understanding. You remember in John 14, Philip was the one who said, well, Lord, show us the Father. And he had to say, oh, Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long? And so maybe he was a little thick, and he needed this extra lesson. Another one suggested, well, that Philip was from Bethsaida, so he would be a great one to strip of those resources because he knew the area. And on and on they went. We could keep on going. All of those things are possible, but Scripture doesn't tell us. And if Scripture doesn't tell us, what? We really don't need to know? Uh, the one that I would suggest, and I, I think is probably it, is, is simply this. Just like John 6 says, Philip needed to know. <laughs> Philip needed his faith strengthened. Philip needed to be shown that Jesus is the answer. So Jesus says it's your baby. Can you imagine, Philip? Jesus is intending to feed this mob. He knows he's going to do that. But he looks at Philip and says, you take care of it. How much is it going to cost to feed him? And so Philip instantly, instead of saying, Lord, can't do it, he begins to calculate and tackle the problem. And he calculates without Christ. What does he say? Well, look at the passage. 200 denarii's worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone may even get a little, a snack. Now, there's a lot of ways to figuring out this 200 denarii issue. One says that the denarius is roughly equivalent to about 17 cents. But that's really a terrible way to calculate this. Uh, because of money changes and inflation since 2,000 years and all this kind of thing, it's much better to take a biblical approach, and we say this, that a denarii, one, a denarius, one, was a common laborer's daily wage. Common laborer's daily wage. So what if we do that and say, well, what's a common laborer earned today per hour? Common labor. What's the minimum wage? Somewhere around $5? So let's do that. Let's say $5 an hour times eight hours. That gives us $40 a day. 200 denarii, if it's a one day's wage, would equivalent of about six months. So 200 days. So $40 times 200 days equals 8000 now, let's be conservative here and say that this is a crowd of 15,000. So, $8,000 divided by 15,000 is how much, Arcelio? Right, that's good. 53 cents. Ladies, you feed hungry men. Is 53 cents enough to feed somebody who hasn't eaten all day? No. So, here's Philip's answer to this impossible circumstance. He says, Lord... I've calculated it, and it just can't be done. 200 denarii is not enough for a snack. But he's got a bigger problem than that. This was a desert place, remember? means there's no ATM machines around. You can't go withdraw some cash. You can't run to the local Albertsons or Superfresh or Winn-Dixie. 
It's a desert place. There's no food to be found. But that's not all. Remember what we said earlier? The twelve had been sent out with no money. They'd been gone for six months. There's no possibility of them earning any money. They got nothing to meet the need with. They're out of resources. We got 12 empty, poor little men. And the problem with these guys is they forgot that they had the God-man with them. And all they did was look to their own resources. Now, Jesus wants them to know who they're supposed to be depending on. So he leaves Philip to fester here in John 6 and proceeds to minister to these people. Go over to Matthew 14 and we'll see that. If you'll notice Matthew 14, verse 14, it says, Jesus went forth, saw this great multitude, and was moved with compassion towards them. Now, if you have a new American standard, it says, Jesus said, Poor desperate people. People that have had to be carried. They're hurting. And Jesus, moved with compassion, ministers to them. And I want you to own this, beloved. Who are these people? They're the very same ones he was trying to what? Get away from. We have an incredible Jesus. Sets aside his own need his own interest, to minister to them. That's our Jesus. Turn over to Mark 6. We get another insight. Verse 32, they departed into a desert place by the boat secretly. The people saw them departing, and they knew him, and so they ran afoot out of all the cities. And you see the phrase there, went before them, and then, here's the key phrase, came together unto him. That is a good translation in the King James. The New American says they got there before Jesus. We already know from John 6 that Jesus got there first. The word there is praerkamai. It can be translated got there before them. But if you'll check it in your lexicon and in your concordances, you will also find that the phrase can be translated this way. Assembled together unto them. Or came together unto them. And that's the way it should be translated. Otherwise, we got an error in the two passages. Because each one, Mark is claiming the people got there first, and John's claiming that Jesus got there first. So it's very easy. But he just assembled together there. Well, what do we want to notice here? What does Jesus say about these people? Verse 34. He saw them and was moved with compassion towards them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. The Jewish hierarchy was so destitute that these people are bankrupt. They're sheep without a shepherd. What's that mean? It means they don't know God. It means they're lost. It means they will perish. What do sheep, what happens to sheep without a shepherd out in the wilderness? They die. And so Jesus moved with compassion, 
shepherds them. And please notice how he shepherds them at the end of the verse 34. What's it say? He began to teach them many things. Please mark that. The true mark of a shepherd is that he teaches the sheep. Like Ephesians 4 says, God gives shepherds to equip the saints, to make them strong, so that they're not tossed by all these winds of false doctrine, because lies bring bondage, but truth sets free. And so the key role of a shepherd is not how well he strokes the sheep. It's how well he teaches them so that they can stand in dependence upon him. That's upon God, not upon the shepherd. The greatest joy I have is, is like in the counseling ministry, when we're done and people come to me and they say, oh, I don't need you. I don't need you anymore. Praise God. That's the way it ought to be. You need Christ. So this is what Jesus does. He feeds them. The Luke passage teaches us that that he's teaching them about the kingdom. The authority of God invading the realm of man. The provision of God. That God will meet all their needs. The hope of restoration and glory. The removal of sin. But then in Luke 9, it tells us a fascinating thing. We won't turn there because we're getting late. But Luke 9 verse 12 says it's getting late. You say, well, how late? Well, in Matthew 14, 15, it says it's now evening. And if we had the time, we'd go over to Mark 6, 35, where it would tell us that the people are hungry. Jesus has been teaching and healing so long now that the day is gone. And that then means we need to set the scenario. So let's do that. Let's look at this passage, what we've come so far now as a whole. Jesus is over here near Capernaum. The twelve have been gone for six to eight months. They've been out there healing and and casting out demons and teaching. And they've stirred up quite a bunch of fur there. And and so all these people are are coming here following the twelve. And the twelve are coming back to get some rest and to tell Jesus everything that's going on. But Jesus himself is grieved because he's just heard that John the Baptist has been killed. And they don't even have time to eat, so Jesus says, we got to get out of here. And so early in the morning, they take a boat across a four-mile journey, and they get there first. And Jesus takes them up on the mountain, and he sits down, and he begins to listen to them and to teach them. The crowd, however, is, is not going to be denied, and so they begin to run, it says. Up and around here, nine-mile journey, the crowd growing as, as they come, and, and it grows to some 5,000 men, twenty to 30,000 people, and the crowd comes up here, and the very people Jesus is trying to get away from, and he looks upon them and he says, oh, they need to be ministered to. They're like sheep without a shepherd, and they're hurting. Hey, Philip, how are we going to feed those people? Think about it, Philip. And then he goes down into the crowd and he ministers and he teaches and he heals all day long until it's late and dark and the people are hungry. And there you have it. It's biblical to teach until it's dark and the people are hungry. So that's what we're going to do. 
Not really. I know the analogy breaks down because if I keep you here till it's dark and you're all hungry, that means I gotta feed you. I don't intend on feet. So since you've got appointments with the local restaurants and roast in the oven and all of that, we're going to close, but not without some words of application. And I hope you understand that this is all still introduction. We're just getting into the passage. But I want you to understand this. Jesus orchestrated this whole thing. He knew he was going to feed him. He didn't have to do this to Philip, but he did it anyway. And then he taught all day long until they were good and hungry and it was dark and there was no place for them to go. God is the author of impossible circumstances. Hannah Whittall Smith, in her book, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, writes this. To the child of God, everything comes directly from their father's hands. Did you hear that? To the child of God, everything comes directly from their father's hands. No matter who or what may have been the apparent agents, there are no second causes for the child of God. Second causes must all be under the control of our father, and not one of them can touch us but by his knowledge and his permission. It may be the sin of a man which originated the action, and therefore the thing itself cannot be said to be the will of God. I mean, that's true, isn't it? Men sin. Men do evil things. And God does not cause men to do evil things. We know that from James 1. God does not tempt people to sin. But by the time it reaches us, it has become God's will to us and must be received as directed by his hands. I mean, he could have stopped it. No man or company of men, no power on earth or heaven can touch that soul that is abiding in Christ without first passing by his encircling presence and receiving the seal of his permission. Nothing can disturb or harm us unless he shall say that it is best for us. And then he stands aside and lets it pass to us. That's what you and I have got to believe. Otherwise, we will live like the deists, or we will end up with a wimp like a, for a god like Rabbi Kirshner. Well, that stirs your faith. Listen to what Smith writes. She says, these disappointments have forced me to wrestle with the truth that I can never fully figure God out, and I can never put him in a box. I'll tell you what, beloved, you think you figured God out? You just proved yourself wrong. 1 Corinthians 8 says, if any man thinks he has knowledge, you just proved you don't. Hard times have made me realize that I should not even pretend to know all his reasons for allowing me to go through what I go through. Frustrations cause me to trust him, even when I don't understand. Elusive success forces me to live by faith and not by and what I would share with you, beloved, is that as it was with Philip, so it is with us. From my heart to yours, you and I need to see ourselves in these pages. We dare not walk out of here and say, well, look what Jesus did to Philip. 
we need to walk out of here and say, wow, this is making some sense now to what I'm going through. What I'm going through has not happened independent of God. The bills that are we've got no way to pay, that precious daughter that we love so much and we find out that she's pregnant, That little boy that we had so many dreams of and goals for and we've walked into the bedroom and we've looked in the drawer and we've found it, the drugs. But when we hear those terrible words from a mate, I've had an affair or I want a divorce. When the car breaks down and the bank account is empty, when the doctor calls and says, I'm sorry, it's cancer. Surgery tomorrow. All of those, beloved, are from His hand. Our God can do anything. That is a fact. Our God loves us. That is a fact. Well, then how can I be going through what I'm going through? He has allowed it for us. There is a purpose in this process. And it is for our good. Ah, oh, but Frank, that hurts. Never said it wouldn't. God has chosen to step aside and let it occur. To strip us of all of those other resources. To cause us to run to Him. So that running to Him we can sink into His presence. So that in His presence He can give us all of Himself. And there in His presence, my friend, my brother and sister, you will be able to say, I know God in a way I never would have known Him without this circumstance. You see, beloved, it's the impossible circumstances of life where the trueness of our faith will be found. The trueness of our faith is not seen here on a Sunday morning with our Sunday suits and our Sunday Bibles and our Sunday show. The trueness of our faith is not measured in a Sunday school room where we spit out the biblical knowledge that we have gained through the years and impress other people with. It is easy to demonstrate a faith here on a Sunday morning. But that's not where the trueness of our faith will be found. The trueness of our faith will be manifested in a hospital room where the one we love is dying. The trueness of our faith will be found at a graveside for a funeral service. The trueness of our faith will be found in the midst of a crippling disease. The trueness of our faith will be found with a mama with three little babies tugging on her every day. The trueness of our faith will be found in the job where a boss has fired us or come down on us for something we have not done. That's where the trueness of our faith will be found because we can say, I know my God, my God loves me, He could have stopped this and He chose not to. And that's where the trueness of our faith will be found. 
And I got to tell you, that is the lesson of John chapter 6. We haven't even got into it yet. And I hope you'll come back over the next several weeks. In fact, I feel so strongly about this that if you don't come back, I'm going to come preach on your doorstep. <laughs> so where are we running? Who are we looking to for our significance? Where have we placed our hope? Who is it really that's meeting our needs? Who is it that we've put on a treadmill and tried to make them be God to us and we're wearing them out? A.W. Pink wrote some very potent words, and we'll close with this. What happened to Philip, he says, is in principle and essence happening to us in our daily lives. A trying, if not a difficult situation, confronts us, and we will meet with them constantly in this world. They come not by accident or by chance. Instead, they are arranged, each of them, by the hand of the Lord. They are God's testings of our faith. Let us be very simple and practical. A bill comes unexpectedly. How are we to pay it? The morning's mail brings us tidings which plunge us into an unlooked-for perplexity. How are we to get out of it? Our car breaks down. It threatens to wreck our whole day. An unanticipated demand is suddenly made upon us. How can we ever meet it? Oh, dear friends. How do such experiences find us? Do we, like Philip and Andrew did, look at our resources? Do we rack our minds to find some solution? Do we call our friends? Or do we instantly turn our thoughts to the Lord Jesus? Here, right here, is the test of our faith. Oh, dear listener, have we learned to spread each difficulty as it comes along before God? Have we formed the habit of instinctively turning to Him? That's a great word. The habit. As soon as something comes, just instant. Jesus. I haven't formed that. It's getting better. I'm running out of my resources a lot quicker. Oh, what is your feebleness in, in comparison with His power? What is your emptiness in comparison with his ocean fullness? Realize that you are nothing. When you do, then you will look to him in simple faith and rest on his promise, my God shall supply all your need. Ah, you may answer. That is easy to offer such advice, but it is far from easy to act on it. Oh, that's true. In fact, of yourselves, it is impossible. Your need and my need is to ask for that faith. We don't have it. To plead for that grace and to cry unto God for such a help, sense of our own helplessness that we will be forced to lean on Him and on Him alone. So ask and wait and you will find Him as good as His word. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? 
Why art there thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Amen. Our Father, we're climbing up the mountaintop, looking at tough issues that I know many of us would rather not look at. I know many of us love to employ that third method of escape, denial. But we've got to face it. You can do anything, and you love us. And that means then that these tough things that come into our lives, you have allowed them. You didn't cause sin. We know that. But you stepped aside and let it occur. Sin does not act independent of you. We declare that, Father, and we own it. He is but an errand boy. And you use him. Father, we can't even begin to figure all of this out, but we pray that by the power of your Spirit as we continue these next several weeks, that we will learn the lesson of John chapter 6. That we are to be empty vessels. So that you can fill us with yourself. Teach your people, Father, as only you can. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Mother's Day to all of you ladies. I think we have something for them. Is that right, Brent? If you haven't already got it, ushers? Okay. Two weeks from today, we are going to have a crawfish boil right here on a Sunday afternoon at the church. So in two weeks, you can either bring a change of clothes so you can have some fun in the afternoon or just exercise your freedom in Christ and show up in fun duds. And... uh God will not be disappointed with you for that. Be the church and enjoy the day.